Hi everyone, thank you all for joining. Today we have the great honor and privilege of having Dr. Larry Robinson with us. Dr. Robinson, a native of Kansas, received his undergraduate BA degree in anthropology at the University of Kansas and his medical degree from the Washington University School of Medicine in St. Louis, Missouri. He completed his internship and residency in general and cardiothoracic surgery at Duke University Medical Center. Additionally, he completed a fellowship in cardiac research and clinical cardiac surgery at the St. Thomas Hospital in London. He also served as a flight surgeon at the rank of major USAF in Thailand during the Vietnam War. A diplomat of the American Board of Surgery, the American Board of Thoracic Surgery, as well as certified in surgical critical care, Dr. Robinson began his practice at the University of Nebraska Medical Center, where he was an associate professor of surgery and pharmacology and the clinical director of the Clinical Perfusion Science Education Program. Dr. Robinson then came to the University of South Florida College of Medicine in Tampa in 1994, where he's currently a professor of surgery, thoracic, and interdisciplinary oncology. He practices thoracic surgical oncology at the Moffitt Cancer Center as a senior member of the Moffitt Medical Group. He's also director of the Pancoast Tumor Program in the Department of Thoracic Oncology. Recently, he helped found the Center for Infection Research in Cancer in 2012, and he's also the co-founder and president of Prelude to Cure, a nonprofit charity dedicated to raising funds to support lung cancer research. Dr. Robinson is an author um, and co-author of over 160 medical publications. He's directly involved as principal investigator in two ongoing clinical cancer research protocols involving lung cancer and the microbiome, as well as lung cancer in never smoking women. He's also a co-principal investigator for a prospective multi-center clinical study evaluating the influence of the gut microbiome on the effectiveness of immunotherapy for advanced lung cancer. Clinically, he is a member of the multidisciplinary thoracic oncology group involved in the evaluation and treatment of all stages of lung cancer, and other thoracic cancers, which includes aggressive combined modality therapy, including numerous clinical trials. Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for your time and willingness to be here with us. We know that we're going to learn a lot from this podcast today. Well, thank you for inviting me. It's been a real pleasure. Awesome. So before we continue, we want to launch a quick poll to get a feel of the audience we have today. We have two questions that ask how much you know about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. So I'm going to launch the poll. If everyone could take a couple of uh, minutes to fill it out, that would be wonderful. Okay, so it looks like we have some responses in, so I'm gonna end the poll and share the results. It looks like we have a pretty wide audience today. Um, some people haven't heard about lung cancer screening and don't know much about lung cancer, whereas other people have 
um, know a considerable amount about both topics. So um, great to see that we have um, people from all levels uh, on the call today. And with Dr. Robinson's expertise, um, we're super excited to learn more about um, lung cancer and his work um, in the lung cancer field. So to introduce myself and my team, my name is Priyanka and with me I have Anishko Gilam and Drake Wong. We are part of the American Lung Cancer Screening Initiative or ALSI for short. And for those who might not be familiar with our organization, we have a couple of slides to share about who we are. ALSI is a 501c3 nonprofit that works to raise awareness for lung cancer and lung cancer screening. We are a team of over 200 students and doctors located across the United States. And we do the work that we do because lung cancer is the deadliest cancer in the world, causing more deaths than breast, prostate, and colon cancers combined. Lung cancer causes about 380 deaths per day in the U.S. alone. Lung cancer is very fatal because currently many patients are being diagnosed at a late stage when the cancer has grown and spread to other parts of the body. Lung cancer screening is an effective imaging technique that can be used to screen for lung cancer and has been shown to catch lung cancers early. However, less than 6% of people at high risk for lung cancer are currently getting screened. The screening rate for lung cancer is much lower than the screening rates for breast, cervical, and colon cancers, which are about 70%. We believe educating people about lung cancer and lung cancer screening is one of the most important and effective ways to increase the lung cancer screening rate for populations that would benefit from screening. So far, we have given over 120 presentations on lung cancer and lung cancer screening to universities, hospitals, medical schools, and organizations around the U.S., as well as India, Canada, Brazil, and Mexico, reaching over 10,000 people. Over the last year, we've worked with 118 mayors from every single U.S. state to issue proclamations recognizing November as National Lung Cancer Awareness Month. We've also had the opportunity to work with several leaders at the state level, including Arizona State Senator Leela Alston, who is a lung cancer survivor, Pennsylvania Governor Tom Wolf, and Lieutenant Governor of Colorado Diane Primavera to increase awareness of lung cancer screening. In addition to our education, outreach, and advocacy efforts, we recently started a podcast series to share the personal side of lung cancer and provide a platform for lung cancer survivors and advocates to share their stories. ALSI also worked with U.S. Congress members and senators to draft and advocate for the first ever House and Senate resolutions, recognizing the importance of the early detection of lung cancer through screening. And in December 2020, the Senate resolution was passed with unanimous consent, marking the first time the U.S. Senate has ever recognized the importance of screening. ALSI has also been actively working with Representative Brennan Boyle and Senator Tina Smith to draft and advocate for Catherine's Law for Lung Cancer Early Detection and Survival Act of 2021. Lastly, we want to end by talking a little bit about lung cancer screening. Lung cancer screening is done using a low-dose computed tomography scan. This scan uses low radiation doses, is pain-free, and takes less than five minutes to complete. The United States Preventive Services Task Force, also known as the USPSDF, sets guidelines for who should be screened for lung cancer. Right now, they recommend that people between the ages of 50 and 80, who have a 20-pack year smoking history or more, and who are current or former smokers who could, within the past 15 years, get annual low-dose CT scans. One pack a year is defined as smoking on average one pack a day for one year, 
and therefore 20 pack years can be meant by smoking one pack a day for 20 years or smoking two packs a day for 10 years, for example. If you know anyone who might be eligible for lung cancer screening based on the criteria listed on the previous slide, please share the link given by the QR code so that they can contact one of our doctors about lung cancer screening. Finally, we want to highlight that there are other risk factors for lung cancer in addition to smoking, such as exposure to asbestos, a family history of lung cancer, COPD, and previous radiation therapy to the lungs. We believe it's important that we recognize these additional risk factors because a large number of people in the United States, um, which is 20, 10 to 20% of individuals diagnosed with lung cancer, have never smoked. Thank you all for taking the time to listen to that short presentation. And without further ado, we can jump right into the podcast. We have a couple of questions prepared for Dr. Robinson, but we will also have a Q&A session at the end where you can all submit any questions you have for Dr. Robinson. And this podcast is being recorded and will be shared on our Spotify, Anchor, Google, and Apple podcasts, as well as our YouTube channel. So first off, Dr. Robinson, could you please introduce yourself and share your background um, in the lung cancer field? Sure. Um... I'm a, uh, I'm a thoracic surgeon. I have been practicing as a, uh, as a full-time thoracic surgeon for now 40 years, um, primarily in the with lung cancer over the last, say, 20 years. I've been at Moffitt Cancer Center for 28 years, and so I've had a chance to see an awful lot of lung cancer, a lot of different kinds of presentations, all different stages, and uh, that's really all I do now is uh, effectively lung cancer. I do surgery, probably four or five cases a week, and then I have a, a very uh, a strong interest in uh, both basic and clinical research in lung cancer. And so I ha we have a number of programs going on. My particular interest in research has been involved in, uh, in viral carcinogenesis, in other words, viruses involved in the, uh, in the causation of cancer, and also uh, a big interest in nutrition and lifestyle changes that uh, have led to people developing cancer and how to prevent some of those problems. And uh, so it's, it's been a lot of, uh, it's been very interesting, particularly in the last 10 years involving the research aspects since we've seen a lot of changes in, in lung cancer as you're probably well aware. Uh, I'm currently now the uh, head of the new uh, uh, lung nodule program here at Moffitt. We have a lung cancer early detection program which involves screening and then nodules, that are, lung nodules are found. And uh, well, I have a clinic where I see people just with indeterminate lung nodules, ones that don't have a diagnosis and try to do the most efficient way of figuring out if these are uh, cancers or should they be followed. Uh, and and that's, a, that's a real problem in the United States since there's an uh, enormous number of lung nodules that are found every year, at least one and a half million are found every year and trying to get those evaluated promptly and efficiently and in a uh, realistic way has been a real problem uh, across the United States, and it's done haphazardly. So we're trying to have a more organized approach here at Moffitt. So this is what I've been doing, and uh, I found it to be uh, terribly uh, satisfying, uh, both in taking care of patients and helping advance the field. Perfect. Thank you. You have a wealth of knowledge, and we're so excited to be able to learn from you and, and the work that you're doing. So to start off our discussion, could you please explain what is the current status of lung cancer and lung cancer screening in the United States? Well, as you mentioned, uh, lung cancer is an enormous problem. There's about a quarter of a million new people who get lung cancer in the United States every year. 
and about 135,000 of them are going to die. That's one person every four minutes. And I was just thinking about, you know, you hear all these numbers and what the perspective is. Uh, that, for, for a little bit of perspective, that's just like having the city of Gainesville, Florida, you know, home of the Florida Gators, everyone's aware of the football team, where the University of Florida is. Let's having all of the people in the, uh, in the city of Gainesville die every year. So that's the number of people who die from lung cancer every year. And as you said, it equals the next three cancers combined, breast, prostate, and colon. So it's, it's an enormous problem. And it's frequently not, pay, people don't pay attention to it as much because they, uh, there's a stigma against lung cancer in the fact that they think, well, it's a smoker's disease. If he didn't smoke, he wouldn't have got cancer, et cetera, et cetera. And we'll talk about that in a little while, but that's not the case. People who can get lung cancer is anyone who breathes. So um, if you just keep that in the back of your mind, um, one out of 17 people ignoring their smoking cancer are going to get lung cancer. So if there's, if there's 17 people on this call or there's or more, one of you are going to get lung cancer in your lifetime, at least statistically. So it's, it's, it's a real bring it home to you, uh, be realized. There's two and a half, there's 2.2 million people in the United States or in the world who get lung cancer every year. So it's an enormous problem, not just in the United States. So it's 25% uh, of the people who die from lung cancer or die from uh, cancer deaths in the United States is from lung cancer. So it's a enormous problem. And only, you know, we only diagnose 18% roughly. I think that's the current number have potentially curable early stage disease because it's found late. And that's the real problem about lung cancer because it can remain silent for a long time unless you do proper types of screening. And, and particularly the people who are at most risk are the, uh, is, is African-American men and women develop lung cancer at advanced stages, disease, and always usually occurs at younger ages. And they usually have fewer packier here's smoking. So th there's, there's, uh, there's problems with different groups in the United States. Right now, our survival has really been impressive in terms of what it's done. Uh, now the lung cancer survival, which is 23% of the people who get lung cancer survive and are cured. Um, not that many years ago, uh, just 20 years ago, it was down about 14, 13, 14%. So every time you improve 1%, as far as lung cancer is concerned, you have another 2,300 people who uh, live. So even though the progress is much behind in terms of cure rates with say breast cancer or melanoma, some of the others, it's uh, really uh, remarkably important. And and it's so many are found, but they're ignored. There's uh, on chest CT scans that are done incidentally, people in emergency rooms had other kinds of scans. There's around 1.6 million lung nodules found every year. And 95% of them are found incidentally, not in screening CT scans, but two thirds of these nodules, which may be very early stage disease, are not followed. I mean, it's, 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 I don't want to say it's criminal, but it's so sad that some of the, a lot of those people that have had curable disease, nothing happens and two or three years later, they have advanced disease and their chances of cure goes down. Now the screening chest CT scan um, has, has been a, a, an important part that so far we haven't been able to get the penetration, if you will, of the, of the society to understand about it. It was back in 2011 that the, the National Lung Cancer Screening Study was done and published, I think, 2013, that showed the low-dose screening CT scans decreased mortality at least 20% compared to just trying to get a chest x-ray. And then they expanded the coverage last year 
as uh, as you mentioned, that now it's about 14 uh, 14.5 million people in the United States are eligible to get a lung cancer screening based on those criteria that uh, Priya Ayakya said just a few minutes ago. In Florida, that's about a million people. Um, and how many get screened? Nationally, it's about five, a little over 5%, 5.8% of the people get screened. In Florida, it's abysmal. 3% of the people who are actually eligible to get screening in Florida get screened. And there's a number of reasons about that we can talk about in a few minutes, but it's very disappointing, the underutilization of this. If you consider breast cancer screening, 75, 76% of women get the recommended mammograms. Colon cancer is about 67%. Prostate cancer is lower, but it's still 40% of men get evaluated for prostate cancer. Cervical cancer is high, 75%. And lung cancer is down in the, in the, uh, in the basement at 5.7%, so it's very discouraging. But on the other hand, is some encouragement because we have a long way we can improve things. Just to give you an idea, some numbers, and, and we were talking about this, the head of the uh, cancer center asked me, what happens if all of the million people in Florida got screening CT scans? How many people would that, lives would that save? So if you go through the numbers, and I won't go through all the mathematics about it, it turns out you did everyone was screened, we'd find about 10,000, about 10,500 new lung cancers in Florida every year if they all got screened. And if you figure out that 80% of those are going to be early stage, potentially curable disease, likely at least six and a half, 7,000 people would be cured of lung cancer long term if they had screening CT scans. What's the current status? 20,000 new cases of lung cancer in Florida a year. 5,000 people are cured. So just by doing screening CT scans, you could double, more than double the number of people cured if we could just get them to do that. And that's that's what's so sad. It's it's available, but a lot of people don't know. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Thank you, Dr. Robinson, for that um, detailed overview. You brought up some several really important points that I just wanted to like highlight and talk about further. Um, you mentioned that um, with the new lung cancer screening guidelines, all, many more individuals are eligible for screening. And so in 2013, the lung cancer screening guidelines were actually slightly different. The age um, criteria was, uh, was smaller. It was for individuals between the ages of 55 to 80 years. And the smoking um, history requirement was 30 pack years instead of the 20 pack year smoking history requirement right now. And so in 2021, the United States Preventive Services Task Force um, uh, modified the guidelines to what it is right now and what we discussed earlier. And with the with these modifications, um, two times as many um, minority individuals and women are eligible for lung cancer screening, which is very significant and definitely a step in the right direction. But um, as, as we'll talk about later, there are other risk factors for lung cancer other than smoking, um, such as exposure to radon and asbestos, um, but, and these other risk factors are not captured in the current screening guidelines. And so um, definitely that uh, we are really excited that we've made progress um, in modifying screening guidelines to include more high-risk individuals, especially minority individuals and women, but there's still a lot of work to be done. I'll, I'll hand it over to Drake um, to ask the next question. Yeah, how have things changed in lung cancer and lung cancer screening regarding research, surgery, statistics, et cetera, from when you first started attending to where you are now? 
Well, it's, there has been a dramatic change, and I've been I've seen this over, like I say, uh, over 40 years, and and so it's been very gratifying. Um, one of the things that's interesting is that lung cancer cases have actually been dropping since uh, the 1980s in men and and in and since the mid 2000s in women, probably because uh, smoking has decreased. But the peak incidence was in 1992 when there was about 80, about uh, 66 new cases per 100,000 people. So it's dropped slightly over the years, which is gratifying. But now we're starting to see an awful lot of people un, uh, that are non-smokers that get lung cancer. So uh, it, there's still a significant problem. The survival rates, as I mentioned earlier, uh, in 2000 was about 15%. Now it's up to 23% in the last 20 years. And it's going up, they think, a lot faster, particularly in the next 10 years, it's going to dramatically improve. Um, there's been an increase, interestingly enough, in us finding earlier stage disease. Uh, and I'm not sure, we're, we're a lot of thoughts about why that might be the case, but we don't think it's because we're getting a lot more screening CT scans. As you know, it's down in the basement in terms of the percentage. So well, no one's really sure, but we are seeing more earlier stage disease. And there's a marked increase in the never smokers getting lung cancer. Um, females particularly, 25% of the women who get lung cancer are females and who are never smokers. I see at least one per week in my clinic, at, uh, and it used to be 20 years ago, it was almost a reportable case to have someone who was a never smoker get lung cancer. So now we see it all the time. In men, it's probably five to eight percent. So uh, we're not sure why that's happening. That's one of the reasons I'm actually doing a prospective observational study in never smoking women to try to look at a whole bunch of different risk factors. Um, so there's been a, in terms of treatments concerned, early stage lung cancers is better diagnosed. The surgery is much safer. We operate on a lot of folks who have never considered doing uh, 20, 30 years ago because we can do this quite safely. Uh, mortality is markedly down. It's it's become a very, uh, very straightforward procedure. The other thing is that now we have a better idea of which patients may have an increased risk of recurrence. Even though you took out all the cancer, um, some of those patients have microscopic diseases elsewhere, cancer cells that are elsewhere that you can't find on all our fancy tests. So some of them have an increased risk of recurrence. For example, if you have a, a one centimeter diameter, you know, sort of a uh, uh, less than that's about a three eighths inch cancer and you take this out and all the nodes are negative, everything looks well, you still only have about a 90, maybe 92% cure rate, which means about 8% of those people had microscopic disease elsewhere. If you take out a three centimeter diameter cancer, which is roughly a an inch and say inch and three eight or three eighths, uh, the uh, risk of recurrence, node negative, everything goes down. It increases to about 25, 30 percent. So we're trying to figure out who is at risk for recurrence because we do know that if you can choose people who have uh, elevated risk, that you can give them adjuvant, what's called uh, chemotherapy after surgery, and you can improve the risk over surgery alone if they're at high risk. Just giving it to everybody doesn't work. And in advanced stage disease, that's what's been the very exciting part, and the medical oncologists are, have been gratified by it, is the amount of options now that are available. For example, radiation therapy is much, much safer. It used to be you gave radiation therapy and all it did was essentially burn the skin and didn't do anything else. But now the, the directed radiation therapy, the toxicity from it, the side effects uh, is much, much lower and the effectiveness has gone up. Immunotherapy, is probably the most exciting thing. You go to a, a lung cancer meeting or any kind of cancer meeting and everything that has to do with immunotherapy 
which immunotherapy is different than chemotherapy. Chemotherapy are drugs that actually kill cancer cells. They're, they're toxic drugs, they're, they're poisons, and they kill cancer cells. And unfortunately, they kill some normal cells, but where they have to balance the killing of normal cells, for example, some in your bone marrow or your hair and that kind of thing, um, with killing cancer cells. And those are very effective in certain cancers particularly. Immunotherapy is completely different. Immunotherapy does not kill any cancer cells whatsoever. It blocks the way that the cancer cell has learned to hide from your own immune system so that your immune system then recognizes the cancer cells as bad guys and kills the cancer cells. So it's a really very interesting approach. We've been trying to learn how to do this for the last 40 years. And finally, in the last 10 years, we sort of started to figure out how cancer cells are learning to hide from our own immune system. So that's been a very exciting aspect of it. In terms of screening, of course, the improved um, expanded coverage in, the 19, uh, in 2021 for screening has almost doubled the eligibility from 8.1 8 to 14.5 million people, including a marked increase in the number of black uh, individuals who smoke. And those are really high risk for lung cancer and they have a high death rate from lung cancer. The thing to emphasize about screening, which many people don't know, is the cost for screening chest CT scans by people who are eligible is absolutely zero. Medicare pays for it and almost all insurance companies now pay for it completely. So it doesn't cost you a nickel to go in and have a, a, a single breath hold screening chest CT scan. And people are worried it's going to cost them money, but it doesn't. Even if you're not a candidate and don't meet all those quite criteria quite, uh, quite well, if you want to get a screening chest CT scan, you're concerned about your risk, you have a family risk, a number of things, you can still get a screening chest CT scan, and it costs on average of about 100, I think here at Moffitt, it's $150. Hasn't gone up with inflation, hasn't changed at all. Now, to give you some perspective, yesterday I went to Publix to the grocery store, had a small list, of, and got my groceries, left able to actually hold everything in my hands and it was $175. So, you know, $150 sounds like a lot, but when in respect to anything else, it's really not an awful lot, particularly if it's going to find something that may save your life. So that's been a real in, improvement. So there's been some a, a great deal of improvement in who's eligible to be screened and you still can get screened if you want to on your own, even if you have to pay it out of pocket, it's quite reasonable. And finally, I want to mention one of the things that's going on in lung cancer and screening, which I'm very excited about. I'm getting ready to start a big study on this, and that has to do with looking for blood, reliable, uh, accurate blood markers for uh, uh, lung cancer. We're still having trouble getting people to go get a screening chest CT scan, and we're going to improve that, but that's still going to be a problem because people have to go someplace. What if you could walk into your doctor's office and have a blood test done and have a very high chance sensitivity in finding out whether you're at risk for lung cancer, uh, whether you may have a lung cancer. So people know what a biomarker is. Uh, most men probably have heard of the PSA, which is the uh, prostate specific antigen. It's a blood test that uh, we get. Um, if you usually start at age 50, you can get it. If your PSA is elevated, you have a high chance of having prostate cancer. Now there's some things that can make it go up uh, abnormally that aren't prostate cancer, but if you have a normal PSA, your chance of having prostate cancer is close to zero. If we can find something, and we, there's several out there markers that are very exciting right now in terms of lung cancer, and if you could go in and get everyone 
to get a, a, a blood test done for lung cancer, even if you found some false positive, you were at least able to get those groups out to go then go have their low dose CT scan and see if they truly had lung cancer. And this is a this is very exciting. I'm hope five years from now uh, we'll be talking about low dose screening CT scans as a confirmatory test after you get your blood test. And I think that's actually may be possible. We'll have to see. So this is one of the things in screening that's very exciting that we hope to improve in the near future. You mentioned earlier that your work is focused on how viruses can cause lung cancer. Could you briefly explain how exactly viruses can lead to lung cancer? Well, that's, it's a very interesting thing. I, that's why I got interested, quite interesting, uh, a while ago. We know right now that at least 20% of cancers, all types of cancers, are caused by a virus. Um, for example, um, probably most women for sure know that HPV, human papillomavirus, causes about 99% of cervical cancer. So now, for example, a woman goes and gets her female exam. They also check to see if she has cervical cancer. Or cervical cancer. They do the standard pap smears, but they also do an HPV test because they know if the woman is HPV negative, her chance of having cervical cancer is zero. If she's HPV positive, she's at elevated risk. But like anything, it's not 100%. If a woman is HPV positive, on her female test, she has about an 8%, 8% chance that she'll get cervical cancer. The rest don't because cancer is a multifactorial disease. You have to have a lot of things together to be able to get it. And I think that probably viruses and various microorganisms are one of those factors, but you have to have all of them. Uh, for example, uh, there's, there's uh, I best way to look at this is multifactorial is um, everyone's looking at the uh, Powerball, actually the Mega Millions tonight. It's worth $1.1 billion if you win it. We have to have all the numbers in the Mega Ball. Cancer is the negative lottery. You have to have all of the numbers or all of the factors to be able to get lung cancer. If you're a smoker, you have a one in six chance of getting lung cancer, but the other five don't because they don't have the other factors. So we think that probably one of those factors besides maybe lifestyle, exposures, genetic risks, a whole bunch of other things, probably also involve a microorganism that might be there. But if you don't have everything together, the microorganism is not going to cause you to have lung cancer or have some type of cancer. I've done some studies myself, and there's a bunch out there that have several different kinds of viruses that have been implicated in lung cancer. But just the fact that you have the virus doesn't mean you're going to get the lung cancer. You have to have the other things with it. So it's a it's a it's a more complicated, as, as most of nature turns out to be, biology, it's a lot more complicated than we'd like to have. It's not just one virus causes it, it's that virus contributes to it, but you have to have other things to be able to actually develop the cancer. So earlier we touched upon lung cancer in never smokers, and currently the lung cancer screening guidelines do not include never smokers. So in your opinion and recommendation, how can we identify never smokers that are at high risk for lung cancer and that should be screened? Well, that's the $64 question. We're not sure what to say about that. We know risk factors. In fact, that's the study I've looked at. I've looked at all the literature about this and we're actually looking and collecting information. We know that what may increase your risk of having lung cancer, uh, uh, inflammatory diet, obesity uh, increases your risk of having lung cancer. This is lung cancer, high saturated fast diet, 
lack of exercise, um, uh, various medications, uh, immunosuppressive medications can do that. Um, and in uh, somewhat third world countries where you have a lot of open fire cooking indoors, you get a lot of exposures at the same time. Um, so there's a number of things that may do that. Uh, a lot of other things that increase your risk. You mentioned radiation exposure, certain occupations, miners, people who are exposed to heavy metals. All of those things increase your risk. We're not sure why, like I say, we have this sudden increase in the number of never smokers. It's in my estimation, most of this is changes in lifestyle because I don't think this is neg negative evolution that suddenly we're gonna evolve the wrong way and get these bad diseases. I think we've had, we've evolved the wrong way in terms of our lifestyle, whether that's our diet or exercise, exposures, medicines, drugs, all sorts of different things increase your risk. And we're trying to sort that out. Then the, the question always comes up and, and you know, well, I'm a never smoker and you know, should I get a, a screening chest CT scan? And as far as we can tell right now, we really can't make a recommendation that somebody does. Now, if your mother at age 40 gets lung cancer and your sister gets lung cancer at an early age, and or there's a lot of lung cancer in your family, particularly first degree relatives at an early age, probably is not unreasonable to go ahead and get a low dose screening chest CT scan. The radiation exposure is minuscule um, and that's probably reasonable. But in terms of all the people out here are never smokers telling them to get their low-dose screening CT scans. As it is right now, no. Perhaps when we get, uh, like I say, some blood biomarkers, it may be easier to do that and we'll have a better idea. But right now, we wouldn't have everybody run to the chest CT scan. Uh, unfortunately, we can't tell you exactly who. Based on your many years of practicing medicine, what are some common questions, concerns, or misconceptions you see patients have about lung cancer or lung cancer screening? Well, there's a lot of misconceptions, as you know, and there's a lot of reasons, there's barriers why people, and I'll, I'll just kind of focus on lung cancer screening because, you know, 3%, I mean, you know, that's, that's, that's a failing grade. That's not even, that wouldn't even get you a D, um, 3% in Florida. So why aren't people getting screened? You know, why aren't they getting it done? Well, big thing, a, a lot of people just aren't aware. There's, there's, there's a real lack of understanding and awareness about the whole thing. And I, I think that's one of the things, but there's a lot of other things. A lot of people are concerned, um, a fear of radiation exposure. And I've had people ask me when I've been to meetings and say, oh, well, I'm afraid I'll get radiation from the, from the, uh, 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 the CT scan. Let me just explain a, a few minutes about that how you measure effective radiation doses is in something called millisieverts. It's named after Dr. Sievert, who was a Swedish physicist uh, many years ago. And millisieverts is a, is a, is a, uh, uh, a standardization of how much you know, radiation you get. For example, uh, a chest X-ray gives you as two hundredths of a millisievert, tiny amount. If you take a coast-to-coast -coast flight in an airplane, you get radiation exposure from ultraviolet ray, uh, from the uh, cosmic rays. That gives you three hundredths of a millisievert. If you're a flight crew on an airliner over a course of a year, you get about 2.3 millisieverts. Uh, a diagnostic CT scan gives you more, gives you seven. However, a low-dose uh, screening CT scan gives you 1.6 millisieverts, a mammograms 0.4. The in terms of what's what do you get just walking around outside walking around all year long you get three millisieverts yourself 
that's again from cosmic rays coming through. What's the sort of dose we start worrying about? If you're a radiation, you're involved in radiation exposure, they like to keep it below 50 millisieverts a year, probably even up to 100 millisieverts a year. There's no real increased risk in cancer. So it's a minuscule amount of radiation therapy, and that shouldn't stop you. But some people are worried about that. Other things are concerned about um, it's not recommended by their personal physician. And that's a real problem. That's a real problem. I asked my own personal physician, I said, uh, you know, how many folks do you refer to get a screening chest CT scan? He said, well, we're thinking about doing that. You know, thinking about it. It's been good. We've been known this for almost 10 years that you should get it done. And one of the problems there, realistically for the family doctors, is keeping track of everything. Because if you're doing a, a prostate evaluation on somebody for cancer, you're going to do an examination in the office, you may get a PSA, and it's all easy to follow. But if you send somebody up for a screening chest CT scan and you get a report back that says they have a nodule, then you have to figure out how to have some type of office um, way of, of following up on those patients, make sure they get their, their screening CT scans or follow-ups they need it. There's a lot of concerns about losing patients, you know, being uh, losing them in, in uh, you know, as we we say that, uh, that they don't follow up on folks. There's a medical legal risk, you know, of not demonstrating if somebody has a, uh, a lung nodule and then having them get another one. So a lot of physicians are reluctant to do that. That's one of the reasons why we're encouraging to send it to, uh, for example, the Moffitt has a screening program and we follow the patients along completely ourselves. That's another risk. There's a lot, there's a lack of availability in, in certain rural areas of having CT scans where you can get this done easily. Uh, Moffitt is in the process of starting to have a mobile CT scan screening program that's going to go out in several buses around in the rural areas to have that available. Um, and then there's a real concern that people have, well, if they find a nodule, I'll end up having to have a whole bunch of tests or a whole bunch of invasive things go on. And that's, that is a concern because 27%, at least based on the studies, 27% of the people who are at high risk for lung cancer or have a screening CT scan are going to find a nodule. And that's why we've set up our nodule clinic. So when those people have those nodules, we can evaluate them and follow the guidelines because out in the, in the community, you know, 60 to 70% of the nodules that are evaluated on the outside aren't, they don't follow the guidelines. And, and there's lots and lots of very specific guidelines on what you do about nodules based on size because the risk of cancer in a lung nodule is based on size, location, and what it looks like. And you have to have a lot of experience to know that. And, and, it, and size does matter. The bigger the nodule, the more chance it could be. So there's a number of aspects of it which require clinical judgment, which doesn't happen out there. So uh, it's, it's, a, it's a real problem with getting lung uh, uh, cancer, chest CT scan screening, improving the, uh, the number of people. But we're going to go out and really work at it hard. And it's mostly education. You mentioned the buses going around as part of um, one of Moffitt's programs. So what are some of the best ways to educate patients and healthcare providers about lung cancer screening and lung cancer screening guidelines? Well, we have a lot of outreach programs for physicians and to make sure they understand that. Uh, it's been, we used to go out and actually do it in person before our friend COVID came along. Now we're doing a lot of these uh, Zoom meetings. I've gotten tired of everybody sort of starting to get Zoom button sitting in a chair all the time um, and it's harder to give a talk quite frankly on a 
Zoom that when you can't even see people or they have their avatar up there and you can't even tell if they're awake or not. Um, but nonetheless, going out and, and talking to physicians in the community and explaining why this is important, what are the numbers involved? And I think we're starting to make some progress with that. The other thing is educating the people directly. And we have a number of programs doing that in, in ourselves, but it's gonna take a lot of time. And people like you uh, with your program that you're doing is doing an excellent job of, of, of taking that information out of the community because it's purely education that people know about it. We've known about breast mammogram screening, breast cancer screening for many years. So they have a big head start on us. And, and it's become, you know, well known that, you know, women need to get their, their CTs or their uh, mammograms, et cetera. And we're uh, relatively new to the field with uh, CT scan screening for lung cancer. So we have some ways to, ways to go, but we're hoping to, we're actually, um, actually getting together with the breast um, mammogram folks that we're going to offer twofers. They do in a lot of uh, grocery stores. We're going to start opening twofers where people can come in and get their mammogram and they can get their chest CT scan screening if they're eligible the same day and be done. So we're trying to organize so uh, we get more folks involved in getting screening because it's it's terrible. If you have breast cancer, you have an elevated risk of getting lung cancer. I mean, it's well known. I see them all the time. So they're they're really related. We, we really, really admire the work um, that's being done at the Moffitt Cancer Center to raise awareness about lung cancer and especially among physicians because that's something that we've consistently heard from a lot of different um, thoracic surgeons is that um, primary um, primary care providers and just healthcare providers in general are not as familiar with the lung cancer screening guidelines as someone who is um, working directly in the lung cancer field might be. And so um, since patients really do trust their doctors. Uh, we we definitely agree that um, raising awareness about the lung cancer screening guidelines among primary care physicians and healthcare providers um, in general is gonna be an, a very effective way to um, help identify more high-risk individuals who should get screened for lung cancer. So um, yeah, thank you for the work that you're doing there. In terms of um, ch challenges within the lung cancer field, what do you believe is the biggest challenge right now? Well, the biggest challenge is, is the biggest challenge is to get people in with early stage disease if we're going to improve the cure rate. Now, cure rates have gone up with our immunotherapy and a lot of other therapies, and it's slowly improved, so it's become a lot more gratifying. But where the where the money is not the money in terms of, of helping people, is finding it early. That's really the, that's the key. Only 17, 18% of lung cancer is found early at a curable rate. And it should be much, much higher than that. And it could be much higher than that because lung cancer, although you can develop a little tiny cancer and it can spread distantly, most of the time, the longer it sits, the more likely it is metastasis. We, we are staging criteria, for example, a one centimeter diameter cancer has a very low chance of being metastatic going someplace else. A three centimeter diameter cancer has a much increased risk. So if we can find things earlier, you have a much higher chance of, of curing and finding curable disease. Another aspect of medicine in terms of advanced disease is targeted therapies. And that's been a, a very exciting thing besides immunotherapy, that's completely different. Targeted therapies have to do with genetic changes on cancer cells. So then saying you have an adenocarcinoma of the, of the lung, which is the most common kind of lung cancer, 
and one size fits all. Well, it's not one size fits all. That's what it looks like under a microscope to a pathologist. But then we find that cancers have enormous numbers of different mutations and that are very important because some of those mutations now we've learned to make drugs that target those mutations and can stop them. For example, there's one called EGFR, which is epidural growth factor receptor. And if you have an EGFR positive tumor, we have a drug that you can take a pill, if you will, that will actually stop that cancer cell and it won't divide, it won't do anything else and it regresses. However, if you don't have the EGFR receptor on your lung cancer cell, then taking that drug is a waste of time. Well, there's a number of now what we call actionable mutations. We have something we can take action against with a drug. And if you have those mutations, that's why we, we call it precision because it's really pinpointed to your particular adenocarcinoma. 70% of lung cancer is adenocarcinoma, but it's, it's a big variety of different uh, mutations that they're in and now we can target those mutations. So targeted mutation study for treating advanced disease. Now, I say advanced disease because now we're bringing immunotherapy and uh, targeted therapy into early stage disease and taking disease which is sort of in between early and late stage disease and be able to downstage it to something that's potentially removable. So there's a lot of exciting things that are being done with adding immunotherapy before surgery, uh, after surgery, uh, adding precision medicine, EGFR inhibitors before. So there's a lot of, of combination therapy, which has been very exciting. And those are the challenges. The challenges, you say, the challenges are to find the right mix that will end up with low toxicity and markedly improved results. This is a question that's kind of out here, but in 10 years, what's the current trajectory and what do you expect lung cancer treatment and lung cancer surgery will look like? I think actually there'll probably be more surgery in 10 years because I think we're going to find an awful lot more early stage disease. Uh, I think there'll be a lot more combination therapy done uh, with lung cancer and lung cancer surgery. We'll have a better idea who's, um, who's going to likely recur so you can treat them. So I think actually we're going to find have a lot more people who are potentially cured the trajectory and i've seen some of the estimates in terms of lung cancer survival uh, is going sort of sort of at a 45 degree angle up so there were a 23 percent cure rate and it's going to continue to go up year by year and it is actually uh, uh, before i gave uh, came to uh, talk with you all today I had to look it up and found that actually I thought it was even lower than that. I thought it was 19 or 20 percent, but now we're up to 23 percent uh, five-year survival overall of all stages put together. So, and it's going to continue to improve. So I think 10 years from now, there's going to be more surgery because there's going to be more early stage disease and our cure rate's going to be higher. It's going to take a long time before we get to the point where we're at with breast cancer, but I think that we have an excellent chance of eventually getting there. Probably not in my lifetime, but in the near future. What advice do you have for current lung cancer uh, patients just with dealing with the diagnosis and then maybe some questions to ask the doctor when they hear the news? Well, that is, that is uh, extremely important. I mean, it's really, really, really important. Um, as physicians, we have two things we're supposed to do. We're supposed to try to cure people 
we're also supposed to and should try to make them feel better. The problem is a lot of physicians don't, uh, don't pay attention to number two. So they frequently come in, and I've heard this from so many people, and particularly sometimes oncologists are, they come in and, and uh, someone has stage 3A lung cancer and they, and they, they said, yeah, well, you have maybe a 30% chance you'll be cured, 25% chance you'll be cured, you know, and, and they're devastated. And it's it's uh, and it's sort of it's it's very discouraging for the patients and devastating for them. And so what I encourage people because I see a lot of people who aren't operable who have a later stage disease and they'll ask me what about you know what's my chances of getting cured and, and I don't try to go over into detail but I tell them you know that no matter what the statistics they tell you no matter what they are it's extremely important that you focus on being in the favorable side of the statistics. If they tell you there's a 40% chance you're gonna get cured, then you need to focus and say, I'm gonna be, and take it in your head, I'm gonna be in that 40%. Because if you, and, I, and I, we're not sure why that works, but it actually makes a difference. Because if you tell yourself, oh my God, I got lung cancer, it's gonna kill me, I can guarantee it's gonna kill you. I mean, it's going to do it. If you have, if that's in your mind that you're going to die from it, it will happen. If you take a positive attitude to it, I don't want to sound like some kind of person standing on the stage trying to get you to, you know, rah, rah, but it really does make a difference on how people do. First of all, their, their quality of life will be terrible if they sit there and just waiting for the end, if they're waiting to die. I tell, I tell folks, you know, when I'm sitting there with them and their family that everybody in the clinic room is going to die including the doctors. We just don't know when. So if you have lung cancer, you need to plan on using every day you have. You may outlive your doctor. And I've known a lot of patients who had lung cancer who were told by the doctor they had a year to live and they outlived their doctor, died before they did. Uh, I've had that told, as it's, 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 it's frustrating as that sounds, it's funny in some respects. So I tell people it's very important to think positive about what they have. Go through things. If they're told about various treatments, Think about it. The second thing is do not hesitate whatsoever to get a second opinion. Now, if you go see somebody and you love that doctor, you're uncomfortable with what they're saying, that's fine. But if you're a little bit questionable about it, I don't know about that. That doesn't sound, you know, if there's any question at all, this is a life-threatening problem. Get a second opinion. Go sit somebody else. If I, if I recommend surgery to somebody and they're kind of hesitant, I say, go get a second opinion. If your physician is upset about you getting a second opinion, you shouldn't have gone to him to begin with. So don't, don't, uh, that, that shouldn't be something that a physician is concerned about. Another thing that's important and that things about your lifestyle, no matter what kind of cancer, whether it's lung cancer or no matter what it is, or, and no matter what stage you are, is very important. Number one, that you stop smoking if you're still smoking. It's been shown in a number of studies. In fact, some of the first ones were shown here at Moffitt, that if you get chemotherapy, and they've done some simple studies, Chemotherapy, the results of chemotherapy are inhibited by nicotine and smoke. It actually causes cisplatin, one of the common lung, can uh, one of the lung cancer drugs, not to even work. So continued smoking, it makes it worse. It also increases your risk of infections, and particularly lung infections, pneumonia, if you get immunosuppressed some by any drugs, the smoking makes that worse. The other thing that many times well-meaning family members and friends say, well, you got cancer, you should rest, don't go out and do anything. Worst, worst, worst possible 
uh, advice you can ever listen to. People who have cancers of any kind, if they're getting chemotherapy, no matter what they're doing, they need to continue to exercise. It's been shown in numerous studies now that if you exercise, for example, in breast cancer, there's a lot of studies. Women who are getting chemotherapy with breast cancer, the ones who exercise not only have a better quality of life, they actually have an improved result with the, uh, the cancer therapy. So get out and exercise and continue to do it. There's a, there's a great number of studies now going on on exercise and people getting immunotherapy because it appears that immunotherapy does better in people who exercise. And why is that? Because exercise is the only thing that ever has been found to stimulate the immune system. There's no magic pill out there. It actually stimulates and improves the immune system. It actually enhances and it gives you a better microbiome in your gut. The, the gut microbiome, the bugs in your gut. Everybody's got bugs in your gut. It's, you know, we don't want to talk about it, but you got bugs in your gut and they're extremely important for how well you function and how well your immune system functions. And if you have an exercise, you actually get a more favorable microbiome. That's the name we collectively call all the bugs in your gut. It actually gets better just by exercising and in so doing improves your immune system. So your immune system is terribly important in how well you function and how well you get through cancer. The thing has to do with diet is important. One of the reasons why we're in this trouble, uh, why we're in this problem right now in the last 50 years, the standard American diet, by the way, standard American diet is terrible. And you might say the standard American diet, the acronym for that is SAD, because our diet has become SAD, is an inflammatory diet. Inflammation, whole body inflammation is probably the pathway to cancers, coronary artery disease, all sorts of different things. And the more, the, the more inflammatory, uh, high saturated fat diet, uh, high uh, refined sugars, all of those types of diet changes we've had over the last five, 50 years have been really markedly deleterious to us. Who end up getting uh, bad COVID, for example? You know, who gets the bad COVID? People who have multiple diseases, people who are obese. And it turns out it's an inflammatory process because COVID itself, the virus causes an intense inflammation. If you're sitting there with inflammatory, smoldering inflammation in your body all the time, and you put in COVID, you're pouring gasoline on the fire. And those are the people who erupt with cytokine storm and die. And that's been shown very well. So chronic inflammation is not your friend. Chronic inflammation, acute inflammation, when you cut yourself or get an infection, very important. Chronic inflammation is bad. So the more you can have a, a anti-inflammatory diet, the better in terms of if you have cancer and if you don't have cancer. And somebody says, what's a non-inflammatory diet? Google Mediterranean diet. That's the easiest way to find out. You can find out exactly what you should eat, which is minimal amounts of meat. Meat should be as a condiment. Try to stay away from processed foods, processed meats, uh, fish and fowl are okay, lots of vegetables, lots of fruits, refined um, uh, grains of all kinds. Try to stay away from refined sugars, but all of that makes a difference. It really does make a difference. And there's again, there's lots of studies about that, but unfortunately it's not emphasized. Thank you so much, Dr. Robinson, for taking time out of your day to share your work with us. Now I would like to open the floor for participants to ask you any questions they may have regarding you or your story or your work. If you would like to ask Dr. Robinson a question, feel free to unmute put in, or put it in the chat.
Yeah, so I actually have a personal question. Um, I found your discussion very insightful and interesting, but what drew you into the field of thoracic oncology? Well, um, I decided when I was in high school, my, my, my dad was a physician, and I always wanted to be a physician, you know, every time. He was a family physician, and back years and years ago, those are the ones who made night calls and went out all over the place. And, and I decided I didn't want to be a family physician. Uh, I, I respect him for the, for the, all the completely. And I, I looked at things and I liked surgery. And then when I went to medical school, I looked at all the other specialties and determined I still like surgery. And then the type of surgery I ended up uh, liking most when you rotate through all the different uh, specialties when you're in medical school was uh, was thoracic surgery, both heart surgery and heart and lung surgery. And initially I used to, for the first 20 years of my career, I also did heart surgery besides lung surgery. And then I pretty much specialized in, in uh, actually thoracic cancer, 90% of it's lung cancer, but we have thymomas and all other sites of cancer. And so that's what I've done for the last more than 20 years is just lung cancer surgery and thoracic cancers. And it's only been the last 10 years that I've really gotten involved in a number of aspects of research. A lot of the research initially done in thoracic oncology and, and lung cancer was in various drugs. You know, chemotherapy drugs and they, you know, drug companies had various drugs. Well, a thoracic surgeon doesn't really get involved in uh, giving chemotherapy and, and doing drugs. So I wasn't really involved in some of the drug studies. But now as things have expanded, now that I've been able to get involved in a number of research programs involving nutrition, lifestyle in terms of cancer, and then the uh, viral carcinogenesis, this really gave me an opportunity and very exciting to be involved in this because it's, it's not only just helping people, it's perhaps making an, uh, having the opportunity to make a difference in the field, even if it's a small difference. I'm not looking for a name, I'm not looking for a Nobel Prize, it's, it's very satisfying. So let me tell you, this has been, this is exciting. You know, I'm 75 years old. I have no desire to retire. I'm healthy and I'd just like to love to continue this because this is, is really, uh, I just feel like uh, I was meant to do this. And I've, I'm, I feel lucky that I've been able to uh, have this opportunity to help so many people. Well, that's very inspiring, Dr. Robinson. I think everyone strives to have that, that type of satisfaction with the work that they do. Um, and I received a question from the audience and it's related to um, what you were actually just talking about. Um, but in, in addition to the research that you are conducting, what do you believe are um, other important studies that need to be done in the field? Well, I think, uh, first of all, lifestyle, as I mentioned, those are, those are studies I think we need to look at. But right now, the, the excitement elsewhere is, is trying to, um, first of all, immunotherapy. I mean, I, don't, I can't emphasize enough how big a deal that is. Immunotherapy is effective, but there's a lot of people who don't. Um, this, this is interesting. If you get immunotherapy for your advanced lung cancer, about 20 to 25% of the people will have a remarkable response. I mean, the cancer will melt away. It's, it's, it's dramatic, dramatic. And you'll see it. And even after you stop the immunotherapy, the cancer doesn't come back. In fact, a lot of stage four disease, stage four disease, in other words, it's spread metastatic in the blood. Uh, the cure rate used to be about 4%. Maybe it's 8% now, 8% of the people who uh, survive. Now we're getting ready to start talking about people and they, actually the oncologists are afraid to use that C word, that cure word, because they're seeing people out who've had immunotherapy, had a good response, 
and they're out four and five years and they're off immunotherapy and nothing's happened. Cancer hasn't come back. So it's very exciting, but that's 20 to 25%. Another five, 10% may have stable disease and the others don't respond. Now, why the devil don't they respond? That's a big, big, big question. And one of the things, and we have a study going on and looking at this as maybe do with again, going back and I, I can't emphasize how important the microbiome, the bugs in your body uh, are so important how well you respond to drugs, et cetera. As I tell patients, there's about 100 trillion cells in your body, 10% of human, 90% of the cells in your body are bacteria, bugs. And they really determine how well you do and how well our therapies work. So we're trying to figure out if there's ways we can modify the microbiome to be able to improve response to drugs we already have. And that's one of the things that's actually going on right now, besides finding new immunotherapy um, uh, drugs, because the, the, one of the, uh, the, there's one particular receptor called PDL1, which is programmed death ligand one. Uh, that's one of the first things that have been found about immunotherapy. We think there's probably at least a hundred different things that the lung, the cancer cells use to hide from the immune system. So there's immense amount of research going on about uh, different kinds of immunotherapy drugs and also which ones to use in other cancers because lung cancer and melanoma seem to respond very well to immunotherapy. Now we have a bunch of other cancers, for example, triple, what's called triple negative breast cancer, which is a cancer that doesn't have estrogen receptors and so on, is a very, tends to be a very deadly disease. You see a lot more in African-American women and it's hard to treat. And now we're just finding out that you can use immunotherapy for these women who previously really had a bad outlook. So using immunotherapy and some of the targeted therapies is, is where it's really going besides getting people in and finding them early with earlier stage disease. This um, wraps up our Q&A session, but thank you so much, uh, Dr. Robinson, for your valuable advice and perspective on many of the pressing issues in the lung cancer world. Um, we really appreciate all the work and research you are doing. Well, I, I appreciate the opportunity to do this and, and, and talk to you all. I just, I just I can't tell you how important it is that young people start learning these things earlier so they're aware of it, because that's where we need to get young people to understand it. You know, people in their teenage years, in their 20s, folks like you, it's so important because that's they're going to change everything that has to do with medicine. But when you have a more educated population who knows what's going on, we're going to have a healthier population. And so I applaud your efforts and I am very supportive and I appreciate the opportunity to come on this morning, this afternoon. Yes, thank you for that. Um, we completely agree. Um, and thank you, everyone, for joining our podcast. Please keep an eye out for our upcoming podcasts and events, which will be listed on our website, www.alc.org. We also encourage you to join our monthly newsletter, where we will share updates on upcoming projects within our organization. Please fill out the Google form in chat if you'd like to be added to our mailing list. Before we end this, we also would like to offer a brochure highlighting some key information about lung cancer and lung cancer screening. If you find this helpful or know of anyone who might benefit from the information included in the brochure, feel free to share it. Thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Thank you so much, Dr. Robinson. Fair enough. Thank you. Thank you for inviting me.